Hi guys, I'm Josh, one of your co-founders of Period 7 Free. And I'm Nate, the other co-founder. Myself and Josh are uh, the co-hosts of this podcast. We talk about a range of topics from politics to music to social media. We hope you guys enjoy and this provokes thought-provoking dialogue. And yeah, thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode. On this episode, we're gonna be talking about access to higher education. So basically we're gonna start off with talking about um, the inequities in the K-12 education system, um, issues surrounding standardized testing, and then we're gonna move on to like college, college affordability, and the inequities that exist in that process too. So Nate, you wanna kick it off? Yeah, let's get started. Um, so like Josh said, we're, we're getting started with uh, inequalities in the K to 12 uh, education system. Um, th- this includes both public and private schools. So, I mean, the whole private schools exist because uh, when uh, segregation in schools was ended um, formally by the 1954 Supreme Court ruling of Brown versus Board of Education, um, Lots of white families did not want their kids going to schools with black students. And so they pulled their kids out of public schools and created the private school system. So all, I mean, the private school system is already founded on race, like that it was founded on racism. But today, um, I mean, I wanted to throw that in. Today, we're gonna be focusing a little more on the public school system um, as it is, uh, I mean, they're both very heavily um, connected to systemic racism. Uh, but we're just going to be exploring more public schools uh, in this episode. We could do another one on on private schools, um, but we'll we'll see how that works out in the future. But public schools K to twelve, it's no secret that there is a drastic difference in funding um, in different public schools, and there's a whole multitude of reasons for that. A lot of them have to do with systemic racism. So. Here, all right. So this is the beginning of APU. This is the beginning of U.S. history with Mr. Kelton right here. I mean, we're we're going back in nineteen go. in nineteen. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. This is in nineteen thirty four. Um, FDR created the Federal Housing Administration. So this Federal Housing Administration was meant to really kind of uh, the government was going to get more involved in things like like urban housing and then also suburban housing. In the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, we start to see that kind of suburban sprawl. You know, families are moving away from large cities, but they're, so they're still in close proximity, but they're in, you know, the suburbs. So when you're driving through uh, all these different suburban areas and you see ha- like house, house after house after house, all kind of with similar builds and yards, and you know, that's the suburbs. And so, like, that's, you really started to see the beginning of the suburbs in the 1930s and then moving into the 40s and the 50s. And the Federal Housing Administration had a big hand in that as they were giving out uh, loans, encouraging people, uh, they were encouraging home ownership. Um, And then banks, private banks started to get involved as well with mortgages. You see a lot, you hear a lot about mortgages today, 10-year mortgages, 30-year mortgages, you know, where you are being loaned money to own a house and then over time you're paying that money back. So you would think 
that this system would be equal. If, if you just heard that and you removed the fact that it was in America, you would think this system would likely be equal. Well, you would be thinking wrong again, because you'd have to remove the fact that this system is taking place in the United States of America. So this is how the way systemic racism really played out in this situation was through redlining. And so for those who don't know what redlining is, redlining was the practice of drawing up certain districts of government officials were able to, or people who were, people who were just really controlling the loans were able to draw out districts of housing uh, that would be considered high risk investments or low risk investments, you know, green zones and red zones, places that are safe, places that would get lots of loans, high property values, and then the red areas, dangerous investments. You don't want to put your money into there. You're probably not going to get it back. You'll probably lose your money. Now, who do you think lived in the green zones? And who do you think lived primarily in the red zones? If you say white people were living in the green zones and black people were living in the red zones, ding, 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 you got it right. So that is how this whole system of wealth inequality really was able to take shape in America through redlining it, property. So property ownership is one of the fastest ways to build generational wealth. It's one of the most effective and quickest ways to build that sort of generational wealth because you're able to buy a home, the property value increases, and then you sell it. You've now made a profit from just living in a place. And then you're able to kind of let that money build. You're able to pass down a home uh, through your family. It really becomes, you know, you're starting to build that uh, not just you're not just becoming rich, you are becoming wealthy. Be being rich just means you have a lot of money. Being wealthy means you have a lot of money that can be passed down through generations. And so these white families were able to build generational wealth with higher property values and black families were not able to because they were living in those red areas because they were debt because places with high black populations were designated unsafe investments. And so this wealth inequality grows massively. And so now you have black neighborhoods that are have lower property values and lower property values leads to lower property taxes. Higher property values leads to higher property taxes. And that's where we now see the connection between home ownership and K to 12 education, especially in public schools. Public schools are primarily funded by property tax. And so, uh, you know, in public schools, it relates to whatever district you're living in. I live in East Providence. So if I were to go to the public high school, I would be going to East Providence High School. If I were to be going to say I'm, I'm seven uh, and I'm, you know, in second grade, I would be going to my local elementary school, uh, which is close by in my neighborhood. All of those are funded through the property taxes on my home and homes around me, right, where they're primarily funded. You know, there's other sources of, of government funding that go into schools, but it's primarily property taxes. And so that's how we also now see this disparity and difference in resources and funding in these different schools. Primarily white public schools have, you tend to have higher property taxes Therefore, they tend to receive more funding than majority black schools. Mm -hmm. And now these schools with more funding are able to provide better resources, better teachers, um, private tutors, all these different things for their students, allowing them to get a great, like allowing them a greater advantage 
over black over black and brown students who are going to underfunded schools. So that's really where we're also seeing a lot of racial inequality in the K-12 system in public schools. And it all goes back to, you know, 1934 with creation of the Federal Housing Administration. But also then it goes all the way back to slavery, where black people were seen, uh, black people were and still are, in some cases, seen as uh, less than human, you know the way we are treated in, a, in an inequitable way, you know, allows, allows us to be treated like this. And then, you know, over hundreds and hundreds of years, you see the lasting effects of this. The, the idea that black people are dangerous, you know, makes, a, makes people believe that, oh, you shouldn't invest in black communities. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of rambling here, but that's really like, that's a great deal of why we're seeing inequalities in K to 12 education. And it dates back to the practice of redlining because now general, generational wealth has been accrued by these white families and not by black families. And then property taxes are higher in white communities, lower in black communities. And since schools are majority, majorly funded by property taxes, there is just such a, a difference in uh, how, how these schools are funded which, and I always say education is the great equalizer, but if students are unable to have equal access to education, then it doesn't really become too much of an equalizer. You know, um, I'm trying to think of a metaphor on the spot here, but um, think of it like a track race. I mean, so you have, you're supposed to, you know, all, all students are, or all the participants in the race are, you know, we say they all have an, an equal chance, really. But uh, let's say the, the racer in lane two is able to move up five steps um, at the start of the race, and then everyone else has to start at the starting line. That's kind of what it's like. Because, and to think of the racer in lane two to be, uh, you know, white students in these you know, richer areas or, or in these more wealthier areas, since they have all these additional resources, they're able to get a head start on everyone else. And before the gun even goes off, every other racer has to play catch up. And so, and then add into the fact that this is now not a clear track for everyone who's not in lane two or everyone who didn't get that head start uh, now has to deal with divots in the track or people, you know, walking into the lane, you know, obstacles. You know, it's, we really see how these inequalities in K to 12 education really affect people. And then that affects their chances at getting into colleges, allowing, you know, restricting them from really getting higher level degrees, which makes it more difficult for black and brown students to get higher paying jobs um, and to really build more wealth and break that cycle of poverty. That's a huge thing too that persists in the inequalities in the K-12 system is the cycle of poverty. It can be broken. My father broke it, but it is so difficult to do so. Mm -hmm. It's so difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, I I am a, a tremendously lucky person and I'm still facing obstacles, mm -hmm. you know? And so there are millions of people who have not had uh, the luck that I've had to be born, you know, with a, a broken cycle of poverty. And so, and it, again, it's just, it's so incredibly difficult. And if we don't fix the inequalities in the K-12 education system, 
then, you know, if you can't fix the inequalities in the K-12 education system, then you can't really fix the inequalities that persist in the college environment as well in higher education. And we cannot break down and really get rid of that cycle of poverty if we're not leveling the playing field in education. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that is my history lesson for today. Nate, <laughs> um, <laughs> I completely agree with you. And I would also like also want to add to that when you have students who are from like say for example an environment like East Greenwich or Barrington predominantly white and wealthy communities whose um, public schools are performing well on standardized testing have the necessary resources um, school supplies books teachers that the children need in order to succeed and then you see those students um, have a high in those uh, certain communities have a higher graduation rate and have a higher attendance into higher education. However, when you look at a when you look at schools, for example, in Providence, um, those schools are severely underfunded. Um, they don't have uh, necessarily teachers and mentors that um, really. I I wouldn't want to say like care about them, but are really. Uh, energizing them and giving them the motivation that they need to succeed in order to graduate and to continue into higher education or to um, another career path. And there's, so there's such a, there's a big disconnect. And I remember talking to one of my brother's friends who is going into education and there's also a stigma of teachers wanting to go to certain counties, certain towns and communities that have students who are wealthy and who perform on these standardized tests because there's a less of, um, in a way, less work for them to do. They won't have to act as a uh, parental figure, as a men, as a, um, kind of as a mentor, st- having to go above and beyond. They want um, somewhere that is a little bit easier to manage and their students are already uh, motivated. So there's also a stigma of people who receive of these like education degrees and these teaching degrees who want to go to certain um, wealthy in, uh, environments or private schools because they view it as um, better. And then also going into kind of standardized testing and how a lot of these schools are, the reason why you see certain schools underfunded is because they're solely relying on how the kids perform on standardized testing. I know in Rhode Island, like I went to public school K through eight, and I remember having to take, um, I think it was called STAR, and we had to take it once a month in math and English, and we would have our teachers like drilling us that we need to get this certain score, we need to get this certain amount. Um, like you want you want to go at that field trip at the end of the year, you want this. So they were really trying to like get us to perform on these t- uh, tests because they they knew that the survival of the school and activities and um, resources that we enjoyed and that we benefited from were on the line. And that if we didn't do so well, that we weren't going to get those things. And I think no student, no student should have to 
worry about that. They should just worry about going to school, having fun, learning, and not worrying about if they don't do well on a certain test, then that's the end. That's the end all be all. And how also the American educational system has really um, made the standardized test the end all be all. We see it, as I was saying, with the star testing, I know um, in Massachusetts, they have the MCAS, like all these um, statewide testings. and when you the SAT the ACT that are really barriers for students of color for succeeding because we see who does well on these tests and they're still around and they're still making one group feel less than than the other because they're not doing um well and also another point another point that I want to bring up too is in certain areas in like Nate and I's shared institution, like we have our school and then right across the street, we have um, Hope High School, which is, a, which is a public school. And they are in the same exact neighborhood in a predominantly wealthy area. And you have one, it's, hard, it's also hard to compare the two, but like the people who live in that uh, area send their kids to private schools. These homes are million dollar, multi-million dollar homes, and they don't feel like their children will receive the education, um, a good education at the public school. So they're sending the kids to the private schools. And there's such a disconnect between the students who attend Hope High School and then the people who live in that community. And I think that's also another thing I think, um, we see a lot in really in cities across America where you have underperforming or uh, underperforming high schools who need more who need more funding, and then you have these private schools right next door, and there's such a disconnect. Yeah. Yeah, I and mean, you're absolutely right. I mean the, the the fact that Moses Brown and Moses Brown and Hope High School are right across the street from one another and just the difference in just such a major difference in the way like schools are run just I mean just the simple you know the, the difference in the buildings is absolutely incredible and one thing um Josh that I feel like should it goes along with this whole idea of uh testing inequity and how standardized testing is really messing with um it, it's really screwing up the education system number one Standardized testing is not a good indicator of intelligence. Not at all. It just isn't. All. It just isn't. Some people, no, yeah, some people just aren't good test takers. You know, some people um, really struggle with, oh, I have to answer this so many questions in this amount of time. Imagine some, like just someone with, uh, with generalized anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, the proctor calls out 10 minutes left and you have 15 unanswered questions someone with generalized anxiety disorder could spin completely out of control, forget everything because they, you know, they have a panic attack in the middle of a test. I mean, you have students with a numerous different um, learning differences. I myself am one of them. I receive extended time on, on standardized tests and everything like that, um, which makes it incredibly difficult. My sister has dyslexia, but before, you know, at, 
eventually she was able to get a, a reader, someone would read the questions to her, but for some standardized tests that she had to take, she didn't have a reader. So she had dyslexia, it, her brain would incorrectly interpret the way words were spelled, and she had to read the questions herself in a timed manner. It sta standardized testing, even if you remove race from it, is still unequal. It still is not a good measure of how much students know. And that brings me to the whole, the whole educational debate of proficiency versus growth. I mean, in this country, we are constantly thinking about, oh, proficiency. Proficiency is defined really as, you know, what do students know? How proficient are they in a subject? <laughs> Whereas we should be measuring students in terms of growth. How much have students learned? You know, where did they start and where are they now? You know, what's their growth track as a student, as a learner? You know, because some people could have, some people may have tremendous growth over a year, but because you're measuring in proficiency, it doesn't look like that because someone could go from knowing absolute, someone could go from knowing 0% to knowing 30% or 40%. And that's a huge jump in growth, 30 to like, knowing nothing about a subject and then knowing a great deal of it or knowing like 30% of it or 30% of the material in that was being taught in the course, that's still a pretty decent jump. But because if you measure in proficiency, you're like, oh, you know, they're not with the, you know, they're not in that 80, 90, 100 range. You know, it just, it's not a good way to measure students with, in terms of proficiency. I'm a huge believer in measuring students in terms of growth. Where did they start? And now where have they ended up? You know, but standardized testing isn't built for that. Standardized testing is built on terms and grounds of proficiency. And it's, you know, and we see how proficiency consistently screws over a lot of people, yeah. you know? And, the, and then you get into the fact too, this is now us a little bit, I, I'm kind of moving a little bit into the college setting or really just that, um, you know, moving from high school to college that's within that area. Lots of schools, this year because of COVID was different and some schools are going test optional, but these, these higher profile schools, you know, your Ivy Leagues, Josh, will never, they will never go test optional. They went test optional this year just because it was hard for students to actually like register for an exam because not many were being administered. But once we get back to normalcy next year, the IVs are likely going to switch back to measuring, you know, to requiring standardized testing. So to go to, to try and attend and apply to these higher profile schools, I mean, the IVs and other high you know, Stanford, um, uh, you know, think yeah. of a, think yeah. of a top tier like uh, an institution. institution of higher yeah. learning and they likely will require standardized tests to be submitted. Um, so it's a required test to apply to these higher profile institutions. And then you have to pay for the test. Oh. And then you have to pay to send your scores. And we're going back to the wealth inequality. So I, what happens to the, the bright kid, the bright kid who's being brought up in poverty, who has busted their ass to work hard has overcome every single obstacle for all of these, you know, is really just done as much as they can with the limited resources they have. 
and are, are being an absolutely fantastic student, like 4.0 GPA or like even 4.3, you know, assuming that the GPA is measured out of four, or if it's measured out of five, I'm a 5.0 GPA, taking honors courses, AP courses, all of those classes, but the kid doesn't have an extra 50 bucks to, uh, to take the SAT. Or he the kid doesn't have, you know, the extra 10 to $12 to send their scores. Well, then now they can't apply to Harvard. Now they can't apply to an institution of higher learning and possibly get a scholarship mm -hmm. and break that cycle of poverty. And Nate, what think about that? Oh, sorry to cut you off. Sorry to cut you off. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just, just think about that. You know, <laughs> that's a situation. That's a very possible situation of a, a student who has done all this work, but because they don't have, um, they don't have access to an extra fifty dollars, an extra seventy dollars, or whatever, they can't send their scores or register for the exam. I mean, think about how screwed up that is. Okay. Oh <laughs> there was one thing um quick uh setback going to back to standardized testing and um kind of the the one of the flaws of the education systems in general is that we teach kids to me like mem memorize a particular subject and after the test is done we we forget it i know that's what i do we teach kids not to really learn but to memorize so when even getting just a regular test, we're just just regurgitating the information that someone um, said to us. And I found even in my personal educational experience that a lot of times, like I don't even understood what's being taught to me. I just know I need to memorize it and put it on a piece of paper. And I'm not really gaining anything from it because we are, so worried about performing well on a test, getting a certain score, and that, and I have an issue with too. If someone gets, um, a, fails a test, gets a fifty or something, that they're not intelligent, and I don't like that correlation because someone performs well on a test, i.e., they're dumb, they're un, they're not intelligent it's that's not a way i don't really that's not a good indicator to measure someone's intellect or someone's um future success and then really going into the college cycle there's there's so much i want to say about this but i have one uh statistic from the uh, from a new york times article that i read and it states at 38 colleges in america including five in the ivy Here's league more students come from the top one percent of the income scale than from the entire bottom 60 percent so that's just that's just crazy to think about that these elite institutions are in a way doing what they were meant to do but when they say that they're being more equitable, more inclusive, but you continuously see that majority of their students are wealthy. They have the money to pay for these private tutors. They have the money to pay for the SAT classes. They're coming from top tier private institutions. And then just seeing that like, there's, there's more of a, this, such a small percentage 
and the American population, we're talking, and there's just they they are overwhelmingly in these um, institutions, and it also goes to the bringing up a lot of times like the college admissions psych, uh, scandal, where we that, that that just highlighted one of the many inequities in the process that you have these celebrities that you have these millionaires these billionaires paying tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of dollars for people to take their children's sat scores to lie about them being on a sports team and doing all these donating donating money to the school and doing all these things in order for their children to get accepted However, you have someone from who has comes from a lower income background, who's as Nate was saying, uh, bust, busted their ass off for uh, years, ga- getting the best grades, doing all the extracurricular activities, and then not getting into these one of these one of their dream schools because of the unfair tactics that some people in the well in the top one percent use well yeah yeah I, I think another another real practice that we see especially at these really prestigious institutions that I consider to be an effect of systemic racism and I don't think it's thought about too much um, is the idea of legacy students Ooh. that's so that's something for anyone who doesn't know what like a legacy student is. Sometimes at so, at some schools, um, at a lot of schools really, and you hear about it a bit more when you get a, to a more prestigious institution. Um, if your parent, if your parent or parents, parents, I say plural, was a much greater help than just sing, the singular parent. Um, is an alum of a prestigious institution. So let's say, um, let's create a small situation. We have um, uh, a kid. So let's say one kid, his name is, his name's John. So John's dad, Sam, went to Yale and is a lawyer. Um, So, uh, you know, Sam makes a lot of money and so they, they live in a, a real nice, nice area. So already, uh, John has access to a lot of different resources. But let's also say John's not the brightest person. So, you know, he, he doesn't take too much of an interest in his schoolwork, you know, because um, he kind of has uh, a lot of things handed to him. Um, but uh, John still, you know, he's a junior, he's a senior, um, and he sends off his application to Yale. One thing that's going to be taken into consideration on John's application is the fact that Sam, his dad, is an alum. So that is going to help John get in. That boosts his application and gives him a greater chance to get into a prestigious institution. And now let's add in what Josh was saying, the idea of like donations. Um, Let's say Sam's dad, or not Sam's dad, sorry, John's dad, Sam, say Sam regularly donates to Yale you know let's say Sam is actually like a corporate lawyer makes a ton of money you know and he don't he he put in a a nice hefty sum donation to to help the to help Yale build a new building 
So now Sam's name is on that building. You know how much you know how much of a big help that is to John as he tries to get in. I mean, it's the idea of legacy students, in my opinion, is inherently racist because it really, you know, I'd say that the the nineteen fifty four ruling of the Brown the Board of Education Act really required required integration of schools, which it did, but it takes it took further acts, you know, such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to really enforce that. Um, and, you know, when black students were finally starting to get admitted to some of these schools, they remained predominantly white institutions. And so a lot of these legacy students are white students with large sums of money. So they have, they have every advantage in the book to get into these schools. And some of these obstacles seem insurmountable. I think the whole the whole practice of legacy students needs to be, it needs to be uh, taken out of the practice of college admissions. It, it just, it feels so incredibly unfair. It's incredibly arbitrary. And it has nothing to do with a student's work ethic. You know, back to that example, John didn't choose to be Sam's son. So it just, it just happened, but because that just happened, you know, the stars aligned for John, he now has, you know, he now has that additional advantage, you know, over the kid who, you know, we were hypothetically talking about earlier, who's busting his ass to try and get into all these different schools. It just that whole, that whole practice of legacy students is, in my opinion, inherently racist, just because of the way college admissions has worked so much in the past. Yeah. yeah. And something that also gets me really annoyed is the price of college. And I think that gets everyone, that's another big inequity because it's one thing to get accepted into your top school, your dream school. And then it's another thing when the college hits you with a sad excuse for financial aid or a scholarship, and it makes attending your top school um, not affordable for your family. And I have some stats that like the average private school tuition um, after um, like financial aid and scholarships was $36,880 per year. And that's not taking into account um, room and board, um, supplies, transportation, and all those other expenses. And the average tuition at a public four-year university uh, for the 2019-2020 school year was $10,486. And for out-of-state stu uh, out students, $15,873. And so you're seeing that the price of college is just going, it's going up, it's going up, and it's making even going to your state school, at the school where your parents and maybe you also pay taxes that go to that place and affordable. And that is crazy to me that someone can go to, can live in a state and not be able to afford their state school. Like that just doesn't, that doesn't add up. And I know like 
even this, like personally, like I understand this because you know this last college uh, cycle, admission cycle. I know myself and a lot of my peers felt this way, not being able to go to a school because you're not able to afford it. And then in the return, these um, places of higher education not wanting or not being able to give you more money. And then in order for you to attend a college, it's going to put you in debt, tens of thousands of dollars. And who does this ultimately really affect? It affects students of color um, who don't have really that big advantage to generational wealth um, as their white counterparts. It affects um, students whose parents are maybe not working, um, have students who come from big families who, there's just a lot of different factors that I feel as though is not really taking into consideration. And a lot of the times you have kids whose parents are not going to contribute anything to their college education. However, their finances are being taken into consideration and ultimately determining how much um, their child is going to receive. However, when you take out most loans, when you take out a loan, it's going to be in the student's name which is another issue I have a problem with. Like, how can you be taking into consideration how much one's parents make, but the loan for $50,000, $100,000 is gonna go in the child's name. So even I feel as though higher education is really set up to make black and brown communities fail because if they really wanted to see higher graduation rates for students of color, for low-income students, they would make the price more affordable, expand um, the access to scholarships, and the access to financial aid. So students are not leaving college with these, with these loans that they can't afford. And it's just like a lot of the, you, a lot of these kids would not even get approved for a mortgage or a house. However, they're being able to get approved for a 200K, 100K loan. That, that personally doesn't make sense to me. And then also going into, oh wait, no, I wanna go. And also even now, like you have this, the student debt at $1.6 trillion. The average loan that someone owes is nearly 40, nearly 40 grand. And it, it, it's just something honestly really needs to change because at the route this is going on, no one's gonna be able to pay their pay their loans you we saw it during the pandemic where the where a lot of people had to defer their student loan payments because they weren't working other circumstances um that out of their control came up and they're and they're being penalized for not being able to pay this loan and how much we make education not as something as a I feel like education is a right, 
not a privilege and we're penalizing uh, students who want to go out there and get an education. And as a society, we, as an American society, we make education the end all be all. Many people can't get an entry level job without having at least a bachelor's degree. And now we're seeing with even a lot of professions that like, they're like, oh, you need to have either a bachelor's degree, three to five years of experience or a master's. And like, how are they supposed to get the experience when no one will hire them because they're saying that they need three to five years of experience? It makes no sense to me. This, and also the American, the US Department of Education is one of the most profitable government agencies. So that, that's a problem in itself. Just think about that. That's a huge problem. Oh, that, that just makes me so, it makes me really frustrated because it's all the hard work that I know students across America and even including myself, even, uh, even Nate too, like all your hard work that you've put in and then not being either being set back with all these loans or not being able to attend someplace that you worked so hard to get into, that's very discouraging. Yeah. yeah. I think one thing too, Josh, that we should touch on kind of going to your point about that whole, um, you know, to get an entry level job, you need a bachelor's degree or three to five years of experience or even a master's. I would go so far as to say that the world of higher education is set up to not really be, like you can't really win at higher education um, as a person of color, unless, you know, like the stars align or something. Because I see, so as a, a black or brown student, as a person of color, um, you can either not go to college. And so you don't get that, so you don't have the debt of trying to attend an institution. But you also don't, you then don't have that degree. You don't have that bachelor's degree um, to those entry level jobs. So you're not able to get higher paying jobs. And thus the system of poverty continues, or the, sorry, the cycle of poverty continues. Or a black or brown student can go, you know, try and get approved, try and get approved for a loan. And it's no guarantee that you will get approved for a student loan go on to an institution of higher learning, come out with a mountain of debt and hope that you're gonna get a job that will allow you to start paying off that loan. Right? Because here's the thing about just today's job market in general, mm -hmm. there's not much out there. Mm -hmm. There's not too many job opportunities for young people. And that, that goes for white people too. Just young people in general do not have too much, uh, you know, do not have many opportunities to get a job. Um, if I'm, so studies have been measuring the, the percentage of wealth that each generation holds. Um, I believe, uh, I believe like Gen X owns, uh, is in possession of around uh, I believe it's around 28%, somewhere within that kind of higher 20s range. The baby boomers have got like, 
54, you know, they're up, they, baby boomers have a, a more than half the wealth in this country. Millennials, the generation above us, Josh, have just 5% of the wealth. All millennials have just 5% of the wealth. Generation Z, us, we're young, but we're not even on the chart. And there's not much room for us to grow. And like, so there, there's no, there's basically no job prospects for young people once they get out of college. So they have a mountain of debt with a bachelor's degree, or if you, you know, say you went to graduate school as well, you have a mountain of debt with a master's, you have limited job opportunities to really be able to start paying off those loans. And now we have systemic racism into this, where it's, again, studies have shown that job applications with more black sounding names, even if they have equal qualifications as a white person, are less likely to receive a call back for an interview or anything. You know, so uh, Jamal can have the exact same job application as Charlie. The only difference is one has the name Jamal written on it and one has the name Charlie written on it. And Charlie's more likely to get a call back for an interview simply because of the way his name sounds. So this limited job market mixed with systemic racism is what's making college admissions to be set up to be almost a lose-lose situation for black or brown people. It's just, it's incredible. And, and the thing is too, the system, I, would, I would argue that the system of higher education is minorly broken. But at the same time, it's functioning in a way that a lot of America functions. Most schools are private institutions. Yeah. They're run like businesses. They are meant to earn profit. Mm-hmm. You know? It, so next year, I am going to... Next year, I'm going to Holy Cross up in Worcester. This is a, it's a private institution. Before any sort of financial aid my tuition is a, around the, it's like $74,000, $75,000. Now, with all the aid and all that that the school gave me, it brought it down to about, you know, within like the low 40s. But sustaining my presence on campus likely doesn't cost $40,000. No, let's talk about it. Sustaining, oh. sustaining my presence on campus doesn't cost that much money. So you are effective, schools are effectively upcharging students for an education. I mean, there's so much, there's so much money that is just flowing through that like the school now has, you know, revenue that they're sitting on and they are making a profit. Oh my God. My God. These, are institu- these are institutions that, you know, are trying, they present in this whole, oh, we are an educational institution. We believe so deeply in, you know, uh, the benefits of learning and, you know, studies and education and all that. And that may be true. You know, these, I'm sure the professors at these universities really do believe in the power of academia. But I, I mean, the, the staff working there, 
some some of that staff, you know, the people on the more business side of it are exactly on they are on the business side of it. Sure, a lot of these private colleges and private universities are educational institutions, but when you really, really look at them, they are at the same time private businesses. To be a business, you are offering a good and or service in exchange for money. Schools are just offering the service of education for money. And a lot of these schools cannot promise that you will get a job afterwards. Because what you see a lot of the times too is kids receive these degrees. However, there's no job, there's not a wide enough job market for them to enter into. So they have these degrees that they're, they end up not using. So that's also very frustrating because you're spending this much money, but there's, all, there's no guarantee that you'll be able to find a job, which goes back to why a lot of these certain career paths require all these years of experience, require advanced degrees. However, you're already a major setback. I just had to add that. I just had to add that. Sorry, Nate. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, yeah. I mean, the whole system of higher education and even the, the, K, the level of K-12 education where we were at at the beginning of the episode is just is so deeply built on, on inequality. And, and systemic racism. I, I would say, like, I, I'm now kind of, if, if you're ready, Josh, I'm kind of moving into closing here. So, and the, I'll, I'll pause for a second. If you have anything else you want to add before we move into that, I'll let you. I just, <laughs> I, I'm very passionate about this um, topic. And Another thing really going, I just want to touch one more time about the student debt and the racial wealth gap is that I have a stat. So this is from the U.S. medium wealth uh, gap by, uh, based upon race from the years 1989 to 2016. So in 1989, you saw the average white family had about $134,000 in wealth. And in 2016, you saw the average white family have $162,000. However, for the black, for an average black family in 1989, it was $8,000. And in 2016, $16,000. So how can a lot of these institutions really expect students of color to afford their, um, their outrageous prices when the wealth gap speaks for itself that because of systematic racism because of Nate what you were talking about redlining the housing discrimination um, all of these things that black people were barred from owning property from a country that they built so it's not until recently where and even now many black families don't have that generational wealth. It's just starting. However, white families had a 400 plus year advantage. And and like just another thing is like you saw that a lot of these colleges, elite colleges are more focused upon being affordable to low income families. So expecting a few and making affordable instead of expanding access. 
they keep that they like to have that diversity quota pretty much that they accept 20 percent of their students are from low income areas instead of wanting to they want to make it affordable just for that group but not expand it and make it affordable for everyone it's just and then also there's one school in dc george washington where you see that the average tuition price um for 2012 to 2013 was um almost fifty nine thousand dollars how and gw um director of admissions basically says they want they target full paying students so when a student marks on the common application that they're not applying for financial aid they are sometimes in this um, case 20 percent more likely to gain admissions because they are paying the full sticker price and the school doesn't have to worry about um, giving them financial aid, giving them scholarship, tapping into their budget to make it a, more affordable for their families. And that what's crazy is that for the, they said in order for their school to expand access and to not worry about anything, they would have to make the net sticker price $90,000. Almost, almost six figures. And I'm just like... It's really so crazy to think about because it does it does not cost that much. It does not cost that much for one student to attend to attend the school. And also sometimes what some of these schools are doing is that they're making certain amenities so they look more appealing to students. Um, I believe Louisiana State University, this was on the on the news like a couple of years ago, I they put in a lazy river, a rock climbing wall, um, all these extravagant amenities. I'm like, I don't know about you, Nate, but that doesn't really seem necessary. You're going to school to receive an education, not to live in a luxury resort. There, there's also that sense of mismanagement and misplacement of money. And I think there also needs to be a reallocation of funds. And once that happens, I feel as though there will be more money uh, for lower income students. Yeah, that's, I just had to say that. That's just, ooh, ooh. Josh, Josh, I am glad you said that. I mean, that, yeah, you are, you are absolutely right. So, are, are we good to, to wrap and move to closing? Yeah, we are. Do you want to start or should I start? Yeah, I'll, I'll start kind of with a, a continuation is, is where I left off before I, I cut myself short. Um, one thing I, I, what I was really trying to get at was, um, you know, the way education from K, from kindergarten to graduate level, graduate level colleges or even, you know, doctorate level of education I mean it's all it, it's so heavily built on you know racial inequalities and systemic racism just just the way way everything functions is is just so unequal um, and you know we see it it really does affect black and brown communities so heavily um and I would go, I say I would go so far as to say this is 
this should not have to be a groundbreaking thought. But I, you know, pretty much everything you really can look at in America has ties to systemic racism. Which, when you start to consider that this country was built on the backs of black people when we were enslaved, it's just, it's like rubbing salt in a wound. You know, you know, just it, sometimes it, I find it so, so hard to kind of sit here, you know, oh, am I, I did not bat a thousand in my um, college admissions uh, efforts this year. I got, I got into great schools. I, mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like I got screwed over. I got into some fantastic schools and I was able to receive some great financial packages, and I was so incredibly lucky. You know, we go to Moses Brown, Josh, so we know a lot of, we know a lot of uh, wealthy kids, you know, kids whose family have a lot of wealth. You know, and I've, I've seen some of these students in, in classes, and, you know, I've heard them talk about grades and stuff like that, and they are doing so-so. But they got in, but some of these students got into really good schools. And, you know, the one, the, the reason, the reasons I can see have to do with, with their financial position. Mm-hmm. And that financial position def, most definitely, most likely has ties to, you know, their race as well. So, you know, wealthy white students at a private school who have access to all these different resources and private tutors. And there were so many people I heard junior year talking about, oh, you know, oh, I, have, I have my private SAT tutor. I was like, private SAT tutor? What are you talking about right now? I honestly didn't know those existed until like my sophomore year in high school. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just, and it also then starts to make me wonder, Josh, when you start seeing, you know, I start seeing all these students who are, you know, likely have, you know, their their financial positions are giving them a better shot to get into these higher level institutions, higher profile uh, colleges and universities. It makes me start to wonder um, what kid got waitlisted or what kid got rejected probably has better grades and worked a lot harder than these students but didn't get in because you know they were they had to they were looking for financial aid and like you said there's some schools are trying to target students who could pay full tuition you know what kid what kid lost a seat because they just didn't get enough financial aid you know those are the stories you always hear about the stories of the the poor students or the impoverished students who overcame all odds and got a full ride scholarship. And those are awesome stories to hear about, you know? And then you also hear about the stories of really the parents who didn't have too much faith in their kids. And so they tried to scam the admissions process to really make sure their kid gets into a certain school. But the stories you don't really hear about are the kids who still got screwed over. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole 
with that whole college admission scandal, you constantly were hearing about all the, you know, you were hearing about the students and the families that played the system. But we didn't hear about the student who lost their spot to the person who cheated. Because I guarantee you, Josh, that after all that college admissions, after the whole college admission scandal came out, the kid who lost their seat didn't get it back. Mm-hmm. The kid who didn't get their chance, you know, the, the schools never went up to them and were like, hey, this person stole your seat away. Here you go. They didn't do that. It was just, oh, well, now we just have one less kid in the class, in the graduating class. You know, you never, you never hear about the stories of the people who got absolutely screwed or who get absolutely screwed in this process. And because we don't talk about those stories and because, you know, we really we're like, oh yeah, there, there's probably some inequalities in education, but oh, what can you do? You know, because we, we consistently have that mindset, these inequalities are allowed to persist. We can change this. But we're just not trying hard enough. We're not taking the right steps. We're not doing enough to end these inequalities from kindergarten on to you know doctorate level education. So yeah, that's that's really what I what I have in closing. I mean, we've discussed um, pretty well just where and how these inequalities exist. Um, yeah, I think that's one thing that's my kind of main takeaway from this conversation is that you know we do have the power to to change all of this but we're not you know we're not exercising that power we're not we we need to gather you know we need to unite together i mean mean, democracy power that's greek for you know uh you know, power to the people, the rule of the people, you know, and, you know, college admissions is not a, a democracy, but just that, that idea of like the rule of the people, like we have strength in numbers, you know, the mass, great change happens when the masses unite. And I know a lot of people feel this way. Black students, brown students, white students, Asian students, like all, all people across all different racial backgrounds and um you know feel this this inequality from the socioeconomic part side of it and then you know a lot of black and brown students are just feeling the racial part of it and if we were if we could all unite together I mean, young people have so much power to make change in the world you know we we have the power if we are able to gather and unite to change this and i'm really hoping that at some point we can yeah so that's really my my main takeaway. Yeah, the, I agree with everything that you said. Um, I think one thing that we see all the time is that we ne- we never hear from the student who what was prepared was um, doing well in all their classes, succeeding beyond expectations, and then they don't get accepted or to a particular school or they don't get the money that they need. And they see a lot of their other counterparts, the other, their other counterparts get the, get the money 
get the scholarships. However, they worked hard in my and they worked harder. And that's just very sad and very like discouraging. And we we see it like for example, even at our school that I'm not trying to at all take away from anyone's accomplishments. Everyone works hard, but the, we also have to recognize the certain advantages that, first of all, being of a particular race, being of a, a particular socioeconomic status, having access to private tutors and, and SAT prep classes, um, having access to college counselors, and so and having just having the money to do these things and then and also trying hard but also you have those advantages to fall back on and then we see that they they get they get into these schools but like we never hear from the other side and i think that's what we really need to do is be more open open to listening into hearing out from the students who don't do don't have those advantages and i think steps that we need to make sure that are getting instilled at these places of higher education to make sure that no kind of that every student regardless of their background is succeeding is making sure they graduate and they graduate at a the rate that they're supposed to so they're not taking on additional debt which will put them at a lower socioeconomic status and prevent them from taking major steps in their life and that we also need to encourage that um learning happens outside the classroom not everyone is a kind of sit down in a chair and listen to a teacher talk. Not everyone learns like that. So we need to make sure that students receive credit for apprenticeships, for internships, from doing hands-on learning. And we need to also emphasize trade schools and all those professions in high school. So students don't believe that the only way to be successful is to go to college. Um, slim down non-instructional costs. So a lot of the seeing the breakdown of where money goes to at certain institutions is very, very kind of suspicious. I think uh, parents, um, faculty members, students should have more of a voice as to where their money goes to. If they don't want their money going to stupid things like a lazy river, a rock climbing wall, um, all these non uh, necessities, then they should have an opinion on where their money goes to. Um, I, I, this is a personal opinion of mine. I'm not, I don't think it's gonna happen, but I hope it does happen, especially with this new generation is making sure public universities are free. Cause I think it's outrageous that I and others have to pay to go to their local state school that we already pay money for indirect and pretty much no directly. I'm not gonna say indirectly, directly with our tax dollars um, and lower and trying to lower the cost of private education because the money that you're paying versus how much it actually costs to physically be there doesn't add up. 
then I would also say just, just we have to start early. There needs to be more funding to low-income school districts. That's one way that we will see that generational wealth gap and the education inequities that exist um, to be how that will be put, kind of put to a stop is that we need to make sure that the poor black and brown communities are receiving as much, if not more money than the wealthy predominantly white areas and that they have full access to um, well-trained teachers, um, also mental health, mental health professionals. I think that's something that needs to be really emphasized in schools. I think a lot of these kids have um, situations that they are going through at home that they don't have a trusted adult to go and talk to. So putting more resources to guidance counselors, to psychiatrists, to um, all these professionals who will be able to help and guide um, students who are suffering to a more positive outcome and help them deal with the trauma that they're experiencing. And then also just making sure that you have, you know, the resources, make sure that they have the computers, make sure that they have textbooks and supplies that they need. Because there's no reason why um, one kid who lives in one area should be receiving a better education than another student in a, uh, 10 minutes down the road, 20 minutes away, if they're both public, um, public schools. Yeah. I think that's what we really, the steps that we as a society need to take in order to bridge this gap that persists in, persist in our world. That's what I have to say. Well said, well said, Josh. So yeah, I, I think I'm all tapped out if you are. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, thank you. Thank you all for listening. Um, this was a, another passionate one like last episode was. Um, we're hoping to get one more within this week. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to record and release it on Friday. Um, and then we, we might have a little, a little rebranding going on with the uh with with the podcast so um yeah i mean we're planning to keep this going even after we finish with this senior project so um if you guys want to you know keep listening and keep hearing our thoughts um yeah i mean just stick around and we hope you join us in the next one and the next one after that so yeah, yeah. thank you all thank for listening you. yeah thank you guys for listening we appreciate it so much see you in the next one